butting heads with counsel, I just, I, you never get anywhere. I also feel like as women, sometimes this works. They're just nice. They might not know what they're doing. And it's like, well, I might be nice, but I'm like, I'm calculated too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I love all that. Say little and think that. about a lot. <laughs> Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I think today is a super special episode, at least it is for me, because it is our 100th episode, um, which I, I don't know, I just think is amazing. So in honor of that, I have on my two partners, uh, Elisa Talaricho and uh, Patricia Baxter, who, if for all you know, Trish started this podcast about two years ago, a little over two years ago. Um, and so I thought it'd be great to have her come on for the 100th episode and talk to her about how, how we got started. And she also has a book out there that we want to talk about too. So with that, let me bring them in. Hi, guys. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rest. It happens to be our 100th episode. So Congratulations <laughs> to all of yes. us. This is amazing. <laughs> I, I can't believe we made it to a hundred, by the way. Anyway, I'm interrupting you. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say the same thing. I, I, okay. So for our listeners, um, new and old, whenever I, I talk to anybody about this podcast, um, I, I explained that Trish, when you started, I thought you were crazy. I was like, yeah. who on earth is going to listen to this? And now I host it every week. So. <laughs> So we've come really full circle. <laughs> but I, I love that. I love that story, by the way. I think, you know, it just shows, I think, if we all open up our minds a little bit to doing things differently in law and that comes down to marketing, networking and practicing, I think there's some really great things we can learn. I, I, I love that. Yeah. And I'll say personally, um, I found out a lot about myself through this whole process. Like I never considered myself like an overly creative person. And now I love doing this. Like it is almost the highlight of my week when I get to record these. So, you know, thank you. Thank you for having the idea. <laughs> but, sure. But I wanted to backtrack into that. So, you know, it, it, this was your idea to start a podcast hundred percent and to do it on video, which I also thought you were crazy for doing. And now looking back at how smart that was, but how did, like, how did it come to you? What, like, what made you think like, this is something I really want to do. So I think it was, let's look at our marketing differently. We did a lot of webinars. We go to conferences and we speak, and that is the tried, true, professional, traditional way to do things. And I'm like, what can we, how can we do that in a modern way using a modern platform? My idea initially was you take the CLE webinar format and you just plop it into a podcast format. It didn't quite work that way, but that was the idea was how can we deliver information to our clients and our industry to help them with their problems, to give them solutions and do it in a way that's not dry and boring. Can we be fun, lighthearted, entertaining, informal, and still deliver value? It turns out you can, you do Megan, an amazing job at that, but that's how it started. And if you look back at our first couple podcasts, I was, oh, it's cringeworthy, but you need to go through that process. You need to be willing to put yourself in those cringeworthy situations to learn and grow. And the podcast has taken so many twists and turns. Um, I realized, and I've stepped away from it. 
I've completely stepped away from it. We've never officially announced it on the podcast, but you are officially the host. I know sometimes we bring in guest hosts, but you are the center of the show now. And you and I have talked about why that happened, which was I was using it very haphazardly as a marketing and networking tool. I just would bring on guests and do topics that were interesting to me. That's it. it. There was no strategy to it. And I saw you using it very niche and very strategically, which is giving a voice and highlighting topics that are really important to our clients, the claims side, the defense side, and that could be claims professionals, insurance carriers, risk managers, general counsel. What topics do they want to hear from us? And you did it so well. And I was like, well, let's, it's time for me to step aside. It's time for me to step aside, let you do what you do so well. And that's sort of how it happened. But yeah, that's how it started. And it's so interesting to see that journey. I agree with you, Megan. I learned so much about myself. I did the same thing. I was like, I'm not that creative. And it turns out it's probably one of my biggest strengths is the creativity that I have. And it also makes you really look at, all right, we're, you're putting yourself out there. You're saying things that are permanently <laughs> you can't take them back. They're out in the world. It's for everybody to see. You're showing up visually on video, which makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable in the beginning. Lisa looks a little it. uncomfortable right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not used to this. <laughs> but yeah, so that's 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 kind of uh, the how it happened. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, for our, our listeners and our viewers, you know, I'm doing a thing that I'm re-releasing old episodes. So everyone's going to get a chance to see those cringeworthy episodes. And I, I, I'm, I'm putting them out there because why not? Why right. not see the growth, you know, and see how it's changed. But one thing I think that really propelled us forward to is the pandemic. Because when we first started, the goal was one episode, maybe two a month. And we filmed them all in our office. And I felt that was such a barrier. It was hard. I think we were stuck sometimes on topics and then getting everyone in the same physical place at the same time and then bringing guests in. And I think that was, it made it more difficult. You slap on a pandemic and put everyone at home and suddenly we're putting out episodes every single week and haven't looked back since. So I think you know, it, there is a silver lining to a lot of this. Putting this on Zoom, I think, made it a much um, easier production and just a lot easier to have a larger reach of more people to come on and, you know, really do more with it. Anyway, I totally forgot about that. You're absolutely right. When we started, it was once a month, maybe twice a month, only in person. And it required much more of a setup and a breakdown. And it, it was just a little bit harder. So when... We, start, we got into it, we started seeing that we were missing out on the opportunity to have some really great guests because who's going to fly to Philadelphia for our podcast? Like, they're going to be like, no. So we actually, you know, we kind of came to that realization in February, right before the pandemic hit. And we had been, we'd started, I think, in October, the year prior, October, 2019, I think. And so February of 2020, we were like, how can we get great, great, guest on. And that's when we set up zoom. Like we never had zoom before that, which is crazy to think of. It's such a staple tool in our day to day that there was a time not so long ago that we didn't have it. And that's how zoom came in. So when the pandemic hit, you're absolutely right. And I totally forgot about that. We doubled down on the podcast because we couldn't do in speaking in person speaking and we couldn't go anywhere. So we did it once we started to do it once a week. 
we started doing zoom from our houses, like, and that's, even though things are kind of starting to come back, this is how the setup is because it works yeah. and it's easy and not everything on a marketing angle has to be difficult or time consuming. So I totally forgot about that. Yeah. And I also had these memories of when we first started, like podcast days in the office were like, a little, it was like, there was a lot going on. <laughs> like Now it's a lot more streamlined and it's a lot easier. But I remember being like, oh, there's a podcast. Like there's like six people in there filming. Like there's lots of stuff going on. <laughs> like, yeah. We had lights. We yeah. had audio. Yeah. We had like our two paralegals in there dealing with the lights and audio. I mean, it was a production and, you know, the pandemic made us really flip it. Now we just, we Zoom. I mean, that's it. That's, it's as simple as that. And we do use some stuff to help us, but like you said, it's way more streamlined. Yeah. Although I will say all that the equipment has come in handy because now we're, we're, we are, and our, I mean, our listeners know this too. We are trying to bring the podcast a little bit more on the road. Like we recently did it at the Tita conference. And that's something that I think we're going to be trying to do more of in the future. So, you know, not only can we use the zoom format, but we are like still going to try to utilize in-person format because now we can do more of that. Like up until recently, the in-person stuff was not that common. And now it's just becoming more common, which is good. And I love that you did that. So you took this podcast and took it into a conference set up live. We went back to the production side with lights and audio and paralegals yeah. there to help you. And then you invited people over that were attending the conference to sit in the chair or the hot seat, I think you said, mm -hmm. and you asked them questions. And that's, I think, such a great way to continue to push things forward. All right, now we have a podcast. Can we take it to another level and taking it to, to the clients potential clients and going into the conferences and getting them to come on and talk about their issues and struggles and their solutions and stuff. I, I think it's a beautiful thing. And plus it's just fun. Podcasting. Oh, yeah. Fun. Yeah. And that was definitely, I'm looking forward to doing another one of those. Cause it was fun. People were excited about it. They were super interested in it. And I, I can't say this without putting good, putting a shout out to our two paralegals, Paul and Aaron, because they're not just paralegals. They are skilled and audio and video and like they are very good at this and they just they're multi-talented and I'm very thankful for their their gifts because it's very helpful for us yeah and we stumbled across that we hired them not knowing they had no. that gift and I don't even know how it came out but I remember Aaron saying to me once oh well, I I have a degree in whatever audio visual stuff and I was like light bulb I'm like no way <laughs> you know this stuff like us attorneys we don't know how to do any of that and so yeah, shout out to them. They do a wonderful yes. job. Yes. Um, couldn't have done it without them. And we can't, I, like, I can't do, like, even today, Aaron was helping out with sound. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you, you guys. <laughs> so, you know, we're not here just to talk about our hundredth episode though. That was just, uh, you know, I, I was very excited to ha have you on because it's our hundredth episode, but you know, you recently re released a book, um, 60 Days to Clarity, and I really wanted to highlight that because that is something that I think at, at, at our firm, at Morgan Eakins, we utilize your 60 Days to Clarity approach on cases. At least I, I can't say all of us do. I would say there's a bunch of us that that's kind of our methodology and how we approach handling. But I want you give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about it and how you came about to, you know, write actually your second book. <laughs> this is your second book, how you came about to, you know, putting it out there and, and your method behind it. Sure. So I, I, I could probably talk about a whole 
hour worth of this stuff. I will condense it because nobody wants to hear me talk about it for an hour, but it started out with some self-reflection and branding exercise. Like if you're in the marketing networking space, what's your brand? What are you good at? If you don't define it, it will define itself. So I just started to ask myself questions. Why do clients hire me? What value do I give to them that maybe other people don't? What struggles do they have and how do I help them solve that? And you start asking, and that's just the tip of the iceberg on the questions that I was asking myself. And once you start asking those questions, you start to see themes. And here's the end result of that. I am really good at seeing through the crap of the case early. Like you can give me a file. And I was always really good when the client would call me and say, what, what do you think? Is this good or bad for us? Are we talking big money here? Can we get out? And we had that 10,000 foot view discussion very early. I was really good at that. I wasn't afraid to have those conversations and I wasn't afraid to put myself out there and be wrong. Like that's really what I found out about myself. That was my strength. And I didn't see a ton of other people doing it. I am decent at taking a dep, right? I am a good trial attorney, but there are a lot of lawyers out there that are better at it than me. And I recognized that, all right, own my strengths, own my weaknesses. And that's how this kind of all came out. So 60 Days to Clarity is my brand. The book has a different title, which I'll get to, but 60 Days to Clarity is that work, which is we take the first 60 days of a file and we turn over everything we can. We look under every stone that we possibly can. We gather information, we put it together in a nice cohesive way. And we come out at the end of that with a recommendation for an exit strategy. Here's how we think you're gonna close this case. And then the client gets to have some input in that and see if they're on board. And we kind of do that dance where we talk about it. And then at, after that dance and that, you know, that conversation where the client agrees, we put it in motion. So that's the overall brand. I wrote this book, it's called The 25 Factors That Influence Liability and Damages. I'll hold it up for our visual readers. It's free, by the way. I'm not making money all of this. I do get a royalty payment, which last month I think was $2.50. So, um, but it is free. Uh, if you go to 60daysdeclarity.com, you can get a free e-version of it on Amazon. If you're an unlimited Kindle subscriber, it's for free. But this book is how you do that. It gets into the weeds of the first 60 days of the file, what information is important and what information isn't. And you, this is it. This is the how-to, get into weeds. You read this book. And at, after you read it, you will be able to do the type of early ev evaluation that gets results or gets information and answers so that you can put that um, into place. So that's kind of the short version of how it happened. But this really works. And I find that clients really appreciate it when you're like, look, like we might not need to do all these other things. Like this is how I, I'm looking at this. This is what the medicals look like. This is what this looks like. This is what I think our liability is. Like we might not need to go down this road of take a million depositions and do all this. Like, this is what I think we can get out at, out for. So this is what I think we need to do to get there. And I find that clients truly appreciate that upfront approach and saying like this, you know, this is how I see it. I don't think we need to do get retain these experts. I don't think we need to take this deposition. And I don't, I think, I think clients appreciate when you're not just trying to spend their money for no reason. Yeah, I, I think so too. <laughs> 
I was going to say, I agree as well. I think that clients are really responsive to this approach. Yeah. And I will say like, you know, I have the big idea. Elisa executes on that idea. So why we have a great team is that she takes and she does 95% of the work. So, and we have such similar philosophies. So it's easy to get on a call with her and say, all right, what are we doing with this case? And it's, it's a 10 or 15 minute call. Here's what we're doing. We're going to do a, try to do a voluntary dismissal. We're going to reach for settlement. We're, we really have to take some depths and then we're going to mediate the case. It is very much a 10,000 foot view, but it is a process and a system that we put in place. And you're like, you're right, Megan, not everybody at our firm follows it, but there are some people that do. And for the cases that we bring in, Elisa and I, and, and a couple of other attorneys, we really work together to take that 60 days and make the most out of it. So I'm super proud of it. I'm super proud of what we've done. Elise has really been the guinea pig for me uh, for testing out <laughs> and changing the processes and systems internally to make this happen more efficiently. So I, I, I couldn't do it without her. Yeah, and we have to highlight Lisa a little bit right now because you recently had an amazing result um, in the last week or so just in put, putting forward this exact technique. Um, you know, do you care to share a little bit about what happened in that case and how, how you were able to get your client out and just really just doing this exact methodology? Sure. Um, I knew from the beginning, this was a product liability case that we were defending. And I knew from the beginning, this product wasn't ours. So I would try to nudge plaintiff's counsel and say, I think you're incorrect. I think you may need to go back to your client to get some more information. I don't think this is our product. And after a few months of that not working, I suggested that we perform an inspection where we would lay out all the information and I would bring exemplars with me. So we kind of scheduled the same. I, I dumbed it down for them and showed this is the product that you have that you allege is ours. This is our actual product. It's not the same. <laughs> so after you know educating them through that process, they agreed to voluntarily dismiss the case and it's been dismissed with prejudice at this point. We saved the client a lot of time. We didn't need to do a lot of discovery. We didn't need to do a lot of depositions and we didn't need to wait for a motion for summary judgment. And I think Elise being a little modest too, because <laughs> she got a lot of heat, you know, of how wrong she was and how right they were. And she really just pushed it. And I think I, the post that you're talking about is I highlighted um, this story on my LinkedIn post um, on the day that we're filming it, which is in November. And it really, when her and I had talked about the result, what struck me was just the persistence. What, one, identifying very early on that this isn't our product and that I want an early dismissal. Not that I'm going to wait around for an MSJ because she could have totally done that and she would have won. Um, but she wait, she decided I'm going to identify this early. I'm going to say, I want a voluntary dismissal and I'm going to do everything I can to get there, which included showing her hand early. And that's such a hard thing for attorneys to do because if they, they think a lot of us that if they show their hand early, the plaintiff's counsel will be able to change their hand and for the better. So we can't do that. And that's just not the case in every situation. Sometimes it is, but in this case to recognize, let me take a slight risk and educate them on why this isn't our product. I, it's a brilliant call. And she did it in a very kind way. Like she did not go after them the way they came after her. So 
I also love that. And the other thing that I didn't say in this post about the strategy, and correct me if I'm wrong, Elisa, Mm -hmm. is that this was a federal court. And we, I think you guys agreed with the judge that you would only focus on product identification, right? Wasn't that the case? Yes. During our initial conference with the court, we explained to the judge that there were some product identification issues and that we would proceed on limited discovery at that point and then go back to him. And that's just what we did. And I think that's also a great strategy too, is to say to, if you have a judge that's willing to be a little creative, let's put everything on hold because this is such a critical issue in the case. Let's put everything else on hold. Let's not do general discovery. Let's not do motion practice. Let's not do depths. And the judge agreed. So you wouldn't be able to do that in Philadelphia state court. You would be um, eating into your discovery time because they wouldn't let you do that. But you recognize that the venue is favorable for us to say, let's put everything else on hold. Let's focus on product ID and then let's pick up the case if I'm wrong. You were right in this situation. So it saved a ton of money because you didn't have to do all the other stuff yet, which is beautiful. And and the judge at that point, even if we were looking forward down the road for a motion, if it didn't work, he at least knew in his head there was some product ID issues. Yeah, I was just going to add, I think judges also appreciate it because there's less game gameage, you know, they're, they, when you're upfront about like, look, like it's not something like that. I think a judge appreciates that. Like, look, you're not just trying to churn things forward, waste my time, waste like the court's time with discovery issues or whatever. You're, you're identifying the problem, trying to resolve it early and get at least part of this case you know, if you, you know, if there's other defendants in the case, get at least part of them out. Like, so we're not dealing with 16 unnecessary defendants or whatever it may be. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's true. And, and you, I think gets you, you get to earn some credibility with the judge because you're approaching it efficiently. Um, so it, it doesn't always work in every venue, but if you are in a venue that you know that you, you, you can have real discussions around efficiency and priorities, I think you do it. And I think even if you're wrong, the judges still appreciate it. Yeah. And even more so now because there's such a backlog in the pandemic that I know in the Eastern District and the Middle District, <laughs> they're, they're very focused on moving cases forward and getting them dismissed or resolved or settled. What are some, like, what are some of the factors that you, you, you don't have to go through all 25. <laughs> sure. You sure you don't want me to list all 25? <laughs> you can if you want. But what are some of the more, I, I guess, what's important, some of the more important factors that um, you think are important or important to consider up front? Okay. So let me, I'll answer that by answer, answering a different question, if that's okay. okay. Yeah. I'm going to back up. <laughs> I'm going to back up before the factors because it's a framework. The book and the 60 Days to Clarity is a framework. Um, and it starts with asking the biggest question and you ask it day one, you know, day one, you're about, maybe it's day two, day one, it's about getting the file open day two. It's about getting it closed. And the question is, how are we going to close this case? There are only five ways to close a file. You're talking about voluntary dismissal, dismissal by motion, risk transfer, settlement, and trial. It's not like you're dealing with a lot of choices. There are five. And so which one is right for you? You you start with that big question. And then underneath that umbrella are you ask four other questions. What does liability look like? What do damages look like? What is the settlement value right now? And what is it going to cost me to get to trial? Those four questions are what you're going to spend the next 60 days answering. If you can't answer them off the top of your head, in some cases that you can, some cases you don't need a lot of information, 
But those four questions are what you're going to spend time answering. And the 25 factors in my book are what you need to answer them. So to answer your question, Megan, the, some of the top ones, venue, what venue are you in? It is probably the most important factor. It influences every single one of your questions. What does liability look like? It's always starts with what venue are you in? Being in Philadelphia County versus being in, an, um, let's just say the upper portion of the state of Pennsylvania and a county up there, very different results on liability, very different results on value and exit strategy. So venue is the biggest one. If you get a case in, you look to see where your venue is and you make a decision or you, you analyze whether it's good or bad for you, or maybe medium. You know, we have some yeah. medium conservative, medium liberal mm -hmm. venues that we're in. And you just say, how is, are, are we going to be challenged by our venue or is it going to be something we're going to be able to leverage? So that's number one. The second one, another factor that I see is a big one is your plaintiff's counsel. Who are you dealing with? Because who you're dealing with impacts so many things, especially the information you're going to get within the first 60 days. Are they going to help you out? Are they going to pick up the phone and be honest with you? Are they going to call you back? Because if they don't call you back, that says a lot about them too. And what information you're going to get. Are they going to say, you're like, listen, Trisha, these are the injuries. These are the liens. I have a demand. I really want to see what we can do here early on. That's kind of one type of person. The other person who is, who is all fire and just wants to litigate, that's another type of person. So knowing who you're dealing with in the very beginning is super helpful. And then the last one, then I'll throw it to Elisa and she can comment on all of these three. <laughs> but the last one is injuries and treatment. I mean, at least for our cases, GL cases, personal injury cases, the biggest factor on damages, pure exposure, settlement is what their injuries are. Are we dealing with amputation? Are we dealing with a death? Are we dealing with a stubbed toe? You're gonna to wanna to find out that. You may not need to know every single detail about their injuries, but knowing the general category of the case, super helpful. So I think of all the factors, those are my top three, but there are more in the book that can really help you. Not every single one applies to every single one of your cases. So it's good, to, but it is good to look at them and, and either rule them in or rule them out as something that you need to be aware of. I agree with you, Trish, on all three of those. When it comes to venue, in the case that we were just talking about, I knew that I had more leeway and more FaceTime with the judge when it came to product identification issues, as opposed to if we were in Philadelphia, I wouldn't have seen a judge so early on in the case. So we may have revised our strategy being in Philadelphia County versus being in front of a federal judge. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to plaintiff's counsel, we, we seem to run the gamut around here. <laughs> we see every kind of personality. And I feel like, you know, and you know me, I, I try to kill people with kindness. It's, it's easier to work with someone in the long run if you're just kind and nice in the beginning. So regardless of their personality, I try not to change mine, not to change my strategy and just be nice no matter how they're going to treat me. It, it's easy for me to go back to my client and say, we're going to see a lot of motions because this attorney is kind of difficult or we may be able to not be able to get more information without too much discovery because this guy's being helpful or this woman's being helpful. And then 
injuries definitely impact the case. I, I mean, it's a little weird, but I, I think it's fun getting in a new case and kind of digging through the weeds and seeing what happened and what their injuries are. And, you know, the value is going to change depending on how serious their injury are, injuries are and what their prior history is. Yeah. So if they've had 17 other lawsuits involving the same stub toe, it may not be a case, you know, that we want to move <laughs> forward with. <laughs> and I just want to follow up on the on the council issue because I agree so much with the the kindness aspect because I I try to take that same approach because I I don't I no good comes of me trying to just argue like arguing fine but like butting heads with council I just I, you never get anywhere and then you just waste so much energy fighting about something that really doesn't push anything forward like what are you fighting about um and I also feel like as women, sometimes this works to our advantage. Cause I think sometimes people oh, like, I don't know. I, I just think there's sometimes a perception like, oh, they, they're just nice. They might not know what they're doing. And it's like, well, I might be nice, but I'm like, I'm calculated too. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, I think it's good to use that underestimation of, you know, what we might be, might be going on in our heads with a smile on our face. <laughs> Yeah. I love all that. Say little and think that. about a lot. <laughs> that's, that's a great line. I love that line. And I'll have to say like, so our process internally is, is very intentional. So when I get a case in that falls underneath the 60 days, several things automatically happen in our, inside our firm. Two things are, we have two calls, one at the 30 day mark of the file opening and one at the 60 day mark. The 30 day mark is all of a, more of an exploration call. It's a 30 minute call max. It usually doesn't end up being that long. And it's an exploration call where we talk about the case in general and some of these factors. And Elise and I have had this conversation more than once and I'm gonna give a hypothetical so I don't waive any attorney client privileges. But the, the hypothetical is, we say, look, this is a bad case for us. We should probably consider moving this towards settlement earlier. And usually the next thing out of our mouths is who's the plaintiff's counsel? Are, is the, has the, plaintiff, is the plaintiff's counsel agreed with this? Are they looking to settle? Who are they? Are they looking to give us information or are they somebody who won't call us back? Because once you identify who they are, you get to say, all right, is my exit strategy in that case, settlement, viable early. And if you identify who your plaintiff's counsel is, you get to say to the client, yes, it's a possibility early or no, it's not because this guy does not want to give us a demand. He's not going to call us back. He thinks working through discovery is going to increase the value of this case. So even though we think settlement early is beneficial, it's probably not going to happen until after discovery. You get to have those discussions with the client so they know what's about to happen. We're not over-promising. We are clarifying the situation. And that's how the, the plaintiff's counsel comes into play. We do the same thing for our co-defendants too. One of the biggest impediments <laughs> to settlement and cost are the co-defendants counsel. They wanna do every little thing on a case that you could probably settle for 20,000. And you, if you know that, you get to say to the client, look, we are going to be dragged through this, even though we think we could settle it probably in the next 90 days for a decent amount. They are a scorched earth type of attorney, and they will not consider it until after discovery. We will continue to pick away at that, 
but I want you to know that's who you're dealing with. All of that's super helpful. And if you can always find that out in this first 60 days, simply by picking up the phone and talking to the plaintiff's mm-hmm. counsel or the co-defendant's counsel, you can read them on that almost instantaneously. It's not that hard <laughs> to size up who you're dealing with. So take that time to do that. It's so important. And one thing I think though is beautiful about the approach though is not being afraid of telling your client something that they might not want to hear. Like it's not just saying, yes, 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 yes. We could, yep, yep, yep. We're going to win. We're going to win. We're just going to have to do all these things. We're going to win. Being like, no, like this doesn't look good. This is how I think we can get out for, for a good number, you know, just telling them upfront. Like, I think trying to be that yes person, it can be a nail in the coffin for a lot of people. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of trepidation about telling a client what they might not want to hear and fear that it might backlash back to you. Like, look, like you deal with the case and the facts that you are given and the best that we can do it is evaluate them and figure out the, the best result and how to get there and deliver that information. Sometimes you can't help that Pennsylvania just has crazy laws. So you have to explain that to a client who's used to practicing all over the, or selling products all over the country. And the, the, being in Pennsylvania, it's not the same. We're not going to get the same results here as we do in other states. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is a challenge, I think, across the, the board too. I mean, it, it, just when you have clients who are all over the country and they're used to, you know, different laws in different places, I have clients who ask me questions like, what about this? I'm like, we don't have that here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sorry. Yep. <laughs> like, I know that works for you in that other state, but not here. Sorry. Mm-hmm. But like, it, Again, I think I go back to, you have to not be a yes person. You have to just, we are paid not to agree, but to offer our advice and opinions on issues and give our clients the best path to resolution when whatever that resolution might be. Yeah. And I think, you know, to say, all right, and this is how Elise and I do it. We've had many discussions like this where we, we say, all right, we're going to put this advice in front of the client and they get to choose. They get to choose whether they want to follow it or not. Mm -hmm. And not all of our clients have followed it. We've said, look, I think there's an opportunity to resolve this early. And they've chosen to not do that. They would rather go through some discovery Mm -hmm. and they get to do that. And it's no reflection on the attorneys giving the advice. We think this is the best course. There are other courses that you can take in, in this lawsuit. And it's up to you to decide what that is. Here's the positive and negative. Here's what we recommend. Here's the positive and negative than that. And here's the other options and the positive and negative to that. But to be able to say it and then kind of walk away and let them decide, it's hard, (laughs) but uh, very important, very important to say, we, here's our baby. Here's our analysis and insight and thoughts. Now you get to do with it what you will. Um, it's really a nice partnership. And I think people feel that to know that they, because we are, we are dealing with sophisticated clients. They've, this isn't the first rodeo they've been to. They've done a lot of these things. So they definitely have opinions on, on how they want their cases run and to hear that and respect that is important too. It's, it's so it's pretty, it's a pretty cool thing, I think. Yeah. And I can say from one thing that I've learned, I've learned a bunch of things from this podcast, but one of the things I've learned is there's varying views from clients of what they want. What they, some want the attorneys to tell them what to do. Others want to be told 
the attorney's opinion, but they want to decide what to do. Others don't really care what the attorney wants to say, and they just want to tell them what to do. It's all of what that individual or that company or that, that what they, what their preferences and, and you find that out. And again, there's not everyone's a great fit with one another too, but all we can do is do our best and provide our best recommendations. And they will take those recommendations and deal with them, how they, their, with, with their philosophy and how they want to react to them. Yeah. Trish and I have gone to clients many times in many different cases and said, you know, we've come to a fork in the road. We can take one, we can go one way and these are the benefits and these are the risks. We can go the other way and these are the benefits and these are the risks. We recommend this way, but we'll leave it up to you. It's, it's your case. You let us know. And we've had one like where we wanted to file an MSJ. We really wanted to file it. We loved our argument. But there was the downside to filing an MSJ, which would have been setting negative precedent in future cases. And we had to have the conversation to say, look, this is what we want to do. It's not our money. It's not our future lawsuit. Someone else might have to deal with this negative consequence. We have to really talk about you, client, your risk um, tolerance, and what do you want to see happen? And we had some clients that were like, oh, we're filing it. Like they were like, Let's do it. And then others that were like, you know, burden hand, I'd rather be safe here uh, and not do that. So it is recognizing that you may want to do something, but your client, like you said, Megan, just may have different tendencies and to listen to that and know who you're dealing with and approach them with their risk tolerance and litigation mindset in mind is super helpful because we have to recognize as attorneys, we don't always have the right answer for them and we need to listen to them on what they want as well. So I think that's a, I think that's a great way to look at it. Yeah. And, and mentioning listening, I mean, listening is one of the, I think one of the most key skills any attorney can have. We need to listen to what our clients are telling us. You need to listen to what the deponent is saying. You need to, you need to listen. <laughs> you can't just think and press forward. You need to actually listen and process and, and deal with the, like what's coming at you. And I like, and listening to what your client's preferences are is very important. Just like, it's like as important as listening to what that witness is saying. It's something that someone told me early on. I think it was my first deposition ever. And I was like, okay, I have my 16 page outline. I'm ready to go. What am I, what should I do? And one of a colleague who had been practicing many more years now, he said, well, go with that outline, but just listen, ask your questions and then listen to your answers. Cause you might not need to follow your outline. And it was such good advice. <laughs> How long did it take you to implement that? I got the same advice. It took me a while to implement it. I still come with an outline, (laughs) (laughs) but but I'm more comfortable with not following it. I just, it's to me, it's almost like a safety blanket. Like I just need, and it helps me prepare. Like really my outlining for a deposition is my method of preparing and I make sure I know every, all the issues at hand, but I don't know how long it took me to follow it, but the outline's still in my hand every time around my computer. I do the same and I use it as a tool at the end to make sure I hit at least all the points I wanted to at least hit. Yes, exactly. Like I'm always so worried about missing something too. And when you go through the preparation process and you make that outline, you know, you're not going to miss any key points. Cause sometimes, you know, you go off those little rabbit holes and things happen. Um, but <laughs> that's yeah, not- I think that's, I think that's such an important tip to also take back to other things too. Like that outline is for you. You know, a lot of people think the outline is to make sure the deposition is complete. It's really a, a mindset thing. It's to 
make sure that you're hitting everything that you want. And it's to help focus you. I think reports are like that too. A lot of people look at reports as client facing and what the client wants to see and hear, but you can also look at them as a way for you to, to really sort through and focus in on what is important and to focus yourself. I know internally, I know Lisa and I do this a lot. It's the reports are used to talk to our future selves. You know, what, what are we going to say today that when we pick it up in 30 days, did we do everything we said we're going to do? Are we in line with the original strategy that we had come up with? Is, or is the case going the way that it wants from that last report? So, and it just really helps focus you. So looking at the things, not just client facing things as stuff for clients, but as a tool for you is so important. It can be done across the board on almost anything. And the other thing with reports that I think is so important, it's that it, it helps me be like, does this all make sense? And like, and, and when I step away and, and then I look at this, like, does this make sense to me? Does this plan that I, I, I'm putting forward actually make sense? And am I doing anything here that doesn't funnel towards what I want in the end? And if it's not working towards the end, then why am I doing it? And and I think a lot of people have a tendency like, well, I just want to touch on everything in the report. I just want to make sure, you know, they, I haven't forgotten this and that I have to talk about every little thing. And to some sense, like some people want that, but what I hear a lot through, again, through this podcast is they don't want all the extra stuff. They just want to know what you're going to do and how you're going to get there and, it, and be able to read it. And cause they have 800 reports to read too. So <laughs> And that's the thing too. It's really, and that's um, to plug my book again. That's really the part of the book too. It's not all information is created equal. There is some information that's really important and there's some information you can leave on the floor and not touch again, not highlight, not really discuss. And knowing which one, which is the important information and which can you leave on the cutting room floor is really important. And that's kind of taken clients into consideration. We have a client that all reports have to be less than one page email, have to be. And that's an exercise to what are you cutting and putting on the floor? What information doesn't make it? <laughs> and it really is very useful tool for attorneys to really cut and edit themselves down and figure out here's the information they want. And a lot of it is big ticket stuff. We just took the plaintiff's step. It completely changes our, our course of action, or we just took the plaintiff's step. She's super credible in line with what we had previously indicated. It really doesn't change the course of, of our, the case or our recommended exit strategy. Those big ticket thoughts, I think what clients are looking for you, from you. I don't know that they want to read a 10 page summary of the debt. Maybe they do. I, I, I've been wrong, but most of mine are like, just give me the, the big, was it good or bad for us? Did, you know what at the hearing, we didn't want to hear what the judges say, are they going to agree or are we going to win? <laughs> like, or is there any information you learned from that hearing that's helpful to us? So it is very much picking and choosing what information is important to you and to the client and what isn't and owning and leaving the information that's not important on the floor. 
What you always stress in the um, larger reports, Trish, is the executive summary in the beginning, which is kind of (laughs) condensing what this now 25, 35 page report is going to say and just hitting the highlights of the case. But if you don't want to read everything else in detail, you don't really have to. All the important stuff is right there. Yeah, I was just going to say, I've been implementing more executive summaries in some of my larger, more complex cases, because there might be a lot of details and they might want to read the details, but they also probably just want to know what's coming up. What do I need to know? What are you looking for money? How much and why? (laughs) And you can give that up front in a one page, one and a half page thing. And then there's like a report at the end that they can read into further detail and, and find the support for all the things that you're putting up front. I find that clients really appreciate that. And and bullet pointing what you need them to do, especially, you know, if you're asking for expert authority or settlement authority, and it's buried on page 10 of a 35 page report, you, it's not helpful, but to upfront say, here's an update in this case. Here's the bullet points, takeaways. We are asking for expert authority. We're asking for settlement authority. The case is on track or the case has taken a turn. Um, we are looking better or worse, whatever it may be. It's just to give them an idea. They can triage in their head. Does this report mean I need to pivot what I had planned for today? Do I need to stop and read this now? Or can I put this for something later on? They get to make those decisions, which helps them become more efficient. Cause you, like you said, Megan, God knows how many they're reading. Yeah. If I was in them, I would not want to read 20 page reports from every, on every single case. Just tell me what, you know, the highlights, that's all I want to know. So it is really important to be able to think like that. How is your client consuming the information and are you giving them the information in easily digestible format? Because if you can do that and make their lives easier, uh, it's a win-win for everybody. You know, one thing I want to make sure we touch on is value. Because I feel as though a lot of attorneys are very weary of putting numbers on cases ever. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind early. But I think you have a different a different philosophy on that. And I tend to agree. I think you can you can put a number on things. Um, because a lot of things things might change, but really upfront, you're probably gonna know. Um, so what is your philosophy on on value up front? Yeah, I think 80% of the cases that you get, you can put a number on pure exposure and you can do it within 60 days. You can say to the client, if this case goes to a jury and the plaintiff hits it out of the ballpark, this is the range that you're looking at. And you can do that. You don't need a lot of information for that. If it's a personal injury case, like, listen, if it's a subrogation property case, easy peasy, you you got your, your number right there. If it's a GL case, personal injury case, it's a little more of an art and a finesse, but if you know your injuries, you know your plaintiff's counsel, and you know your venue, those th- really, those th- three things are what, what you need. And yes, you're going to want to know if plaintiff's credible, but if you don't even know if plaintiff's credible, you make assumptions about that. You assume the plaintiff is credible, and then you work that into your evaluation. And then you look at your other portables. All right, is there going to be a life care plan? You're not going to have that number for probably 10 months to a year, but you can estimate, you can pull old, old life care plans out from similar cases. You can look at the big ticket items that drive the life care plans, the 24 hour nursing care, the drugs, the prosthetics, the PT, and you can really just come up with a ballpark number and stick that ballpark number into your analysis, future wages, 
same thing, get an occupation and plaintiff's age. You can make an assumption on retirement and you can do the rudimentary math. Even most lawyers can do that rudimentary math. You can Google in their region what that occupation makes for, for that number of years. And it's not perfect. And you might be off. You might be off by 20 or 30 percent. But that doesn't matter because being off by 20 or 30 percent doesn't change the critical decisions that you're going to make early on. If I come to you and say, we have a pure exposure range of 75,000 to 100, and I'm wrong, and I say it's 100, you know, ends up being 120 or, or maybe on the low end, like 50, the decisions you make aren't going to change because I was off by 20 percent. So, or if I come to you and say, look, this has cases worth 25 million, you know, 25 to 50 million, what decisions do you make off that? It's entirely different. It's entirely different than a hundred thousand dollar case. And that case you're looking at, do I have enough coverage? Why is it that way? Are we talking social inflation, nuclear verdicts? Like there's so many things that come out, questions that come out from just knowing those numbers. So I think it's important. I don't think it's that hard to do. It involves being a little fearless and being okay being off. And if, I, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And if I'm off, I'm, I'm okay. The clients that we have know that it's not an exact science. They don't expect me to be perfect. They expect me to get pretty damn close. Yeah. And if something changes that changes that value, then we revisit that. So I, and I know Elise is the same way. I think Megan was the same way growing up in the profession, that pure exposure number in the 60 day lit plan was always TBD to be determined. And you would wait to the end of discovery to put that in there. And I'm like, why, why are you waiting? That does you, doesn't really do you any good at the end of discovery, do it early. So your adjuster or client can see what this case means for them. So my two right, cents. Off the, right off the bat, your client will know whether it's a hundred thousand dollar range of value or a million dollar range of value, and they can right. make decisions based on knowing that. Yeah, and I and that part is so important too because if you're like that, that might push the client too to be like, okay, if we're looking at like a hundred thousand range, like let's let's not spend all this time doing all these other things. Let's let's dive into settlement now and see if we can do it. Maybe we need to do. Maybe we can do an early mediation. Maybe. And we can just save ourselves a lot of defense costs. Yeah, I think that's, and that's the thing. That's the point at the end. So once you do that 60 days and you, and you wrap all the information up and you answer those questions, what does liability look like? What does damages look like? What does the settlement value look like? And what is the trial cost? You have some scenarios, some repeat scenarios, which is we have a really bad case, really bad damages, and it's going to be super expensive. In that scenario, what do you tend to do? Most adjusters, adjusters want to settle. I mean, bad case, bad liability, bad damages, expensive. Why would you do much? Then you flip some stuff around. You have a bad case, really low damages, super expensive. What do you do in that case? Or great liability case, really bad damages, really <laughs> expensive. What do you do in that case? Like you, you see patterns and that's where, you know, the client's risk tolerance really comes in and how they like to do it. Most people, you, you can, you can predict what they're going to do with that. Some people, you know, 
really great case, low damages, expensive, they'll try it. Some people will not want to set that precedent. Other people will say, you know what, let's see if we can do a nuisance value or cost of defense settlement early. Let's explore that. But to give them that information and they can see that pattern really helps them to make decisions early. And it's, that's the efficiency we're driving. We're going for the information that's going to let them make the decision that's best for them and for this case. One thing that always comes to mind, though, that might not be included in any factors is, you know, those things that just happen, that throw things off, off course. And I, I know both of you are, pro- are familiar with some of those monkey wrenches that, that you get. But, you know, if you could think of something to share, like, what is something that, okay, you, you have everything set out and you, this is our plan. We, this is, and then what are some of the worst monkey wrenches that could come your way? Um, I've had plaintiffs die on us. That's a bad um, um, We weren't expecting it. They, yeah. they died on us. And whether that related to our, mm-hmm. to our accident, um, we've had that. We've had, um, I'm trying to say, how do, I, how do I say this without disclosing anything? I guess I can disclose facts, but um, we had a case in Baltimore where um, we represented a security company and then there was a young black man who died from an interaction and that was in Baltimore and they, and it happened before Freddie Gray Then Freddie Gray happened and then they filed suit. So it was like, all right, (laughs) you know, we're in a decent venue. It was outside the city. Um, But Freddie Gray happened. So, and the fact pattern of a person in an authority figure, a white authority figure, you know, interacting with a, with a black man who ended up dying, we had to look at that. Yeah. You know, nobody would expect that. Those are some of my examples I think off the top of my head. Um, we've had experts die. Oh, my thing's like a death today, right? <laughs> or sometimes, sometimes you've interviewed a witness who's super helpful for you. You get into the deposition, totally different story. <laughs> it's like, well, that's not, nothing you said was, is what you just said at the deposition. Yeah. We've had clients that do that too. You're in the prep, they say one thing and then they're deaf. You're like, what? (laughs) Yeah. And, and I, I wanted to bring this up because I think it's an important, important thing for, for anyone listening to hear that, you know, we can, you can come up with a plan and an exit strategy, but this doesn't, I mean, obviously there's other factors that could change that plan. So you have to be ready to adapt and be accept the unaccept, un, unpredictable or it always it can happen. And so it's not to say this is set in stone. There's things can happen that we ha- might have to pivot and change. But generally speaking, you can look at the, the, the outlook of the case and be able to come up with a plan, but there might just be other factors like, yeah, maybe an expert dies, maybe your plaintiff dies. There's, you know, social factors that can COVID. definitely impact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all know that. Yep. I think like, but if, if I would, I would love to see insurance company pull the data on this insurance companies that have access to how their cases close and to really look back and see how many of them, did you find the needle in the haystack or how many of them did it involve some finding something new and unexpected and surprising during the course of discovery. 
I just don't think it happens that much. It happens maybe 10 to 20% of the time, but for the 80%, what you call in the beginning is what happens at the end. And that's the cases that we're trying to really make more efficient. Yes. There's always been that unexpected things in experienced claims adjusters and clients. They don't get upset with those because they know there's nothing you could have done to predict that. Right. But let's focus on what often happens and make mm-hmm. that process efficient and recognize, like you said, Megan, that there are a portion of those cases that may fall off the cliff, yes. <laughs> that may go completely wrong or a different direction. And that's okay. You're not going to do this in every single one of your cases and be right in every single one, but you're going to get pretty damn close. Yes. And I think that's like the most perfect way to sum everything up is that, you know, it, it's not an exact science, but the probability is on our side and it works. And so I think it's just, it's something to everyone should read your book. It's free. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Plug, 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 plug. (laughs) And I can't close this without asking, is there going to be a second book? Oh God! Or you no. don't know yet. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> You're hanging up your writing signal. Let's onto something new. <laughs> Listen, you ever say never? I don't feel another book in me right now. Uh, I'm gonna just rest on this one for a little while, but who knows? We'll see. When is your book coming out, Megan? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm working on that that romance novel. I think <laughs> it's the same novel I said I was going to write since like 2011. I'm like I'm just going to write a salacious, dirty romance novel. <laughs> and then Fifty Shades of Grey came out, and I was like, well, now what? <laughs> Can't top that one, man. That's hard to top. <laughs> well, thank you both of you for joining me on our hundredth episode. I'm I'm so glad that we could like tie it up with the hundredth episode with having with you on Trisha and Elisa, you know, I, I think it wasn't so bad, right? <laughs> it's not my thing. <laughs> well, maybe you'll yeah. come around. It wasn't my thing always too. And look at me now, <laughs> but for all our, our listeners out there, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the defense of arrests on Apple podcasts. And for now you can find us on YouTube on the legal navigator. However, preview in 2022, we are going to have uh, the defense of arrests on its own YouTube channel. And as I will announce that once that's all finalized. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>